Alright guys, welcome to the 8th episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I interviewed Dr. Joan Matthew Larsons of the Health Recovery Centre from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Dr. Joan Matthew Larsons uh, is the author of Seven Weeks to Sobriety and Depression Free Naturally, which was also originally titled Seven Weeks to Emotional Healing. In this episode, we discussed everything uh, to do with depression anxiety disorders, alcoholism and drug addiction and how Dr. Joan believes that the root causes of these problems is biochemical and not psychological and how she goes about treating these conditions in her clinic. It was a really, really informative interview and I hope you guys enjoy it. Now, uh, Dr. Joan, um, as with all my guests, it is an honour and a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Just for the listeners who do not know who you are and are not and don't know anything about your work, just give us your background. Um, you want me to, to describe how I got into this? Um, yeah, I actually, yeah, please do. I, I know, I know that the initial story is tough because I've read it in your book, but yeah, please do. Right, sure, I'll be happy to. You know, it really all grew out of a personal tragedy in, in my life. Uh, I had lost my husband to a sudden fatal heart attack, and he was really, a, both of us, in fact, were, were quite young, so it was a, a, a real shock to us. And after that, I my teenage son, was, who had been a really active kid, an A student and so forth, he just dropped out of life and began to drown his sorrows in drinking and had an ability to drink and, and just had copious amounts. At any rate, he had inherited his grandfather's on his dad's side chemistry. He was he had alcoholic chemistry. It took me about two years to figure out that he had to have some help. So here in the United States, the predominant program for treating alcoholism is the 12-step programs. 98% of programs here are 12-step programs. So, of course, I wanted him to have the best, so I enrolled him in a hospital-based program for teens and knew I would take him home in a month and he would be well. And so that day came, uh, he wasn't well at all. His depression had grown, uh, and very shortly after he came home, he took his life. He committed suicide. So that was a second loss for me, and it caused more than pain, I just was unable to stop mulling over what happened. Uh, and, and I began to think what other kind of treatment approach might have made a difference and sustained his life. So I began to look, to read through just tons of, of research studies mm-hmm. on alcoholism and addiction. And as I looked, I was amazed to see the low percentage of recovery that the that twelve step programs get really miserable recovery. The first year, the government studies and and many that were just in the archives of general psychiatry and so forth uh, showed about twenty percent weren't drinking and the eighty percent had gone back to drinking. And the suicide rate among people who were treated for alcohol alcoholism was huge. It was one out of four deaths, and most of those deaths were occurring within the year after treatment, were suicides. So there was a lot that pointed to whatever was passing for help wasn't doing much of anything. Mm-hmm. And 
more than that, alcoholism was being defined by the American Medical Association, the World Health Organization, as primarily a physical disease, starting in chemistry. It wasn't like the bad behavior that they think of as that's alcoholism. Those are effects of, of the brain that is losing rapidly key chemicals that keep us sane and stable from the, the, the effects of that drug, alcohol, from heavy use of it. So that put a whole new spin on things because nowhere was anyone addressing repair for the damage that was done mm-hmm. or a way to stabilize the brain so the cravings would stop and the depression would lift and the anxiety would would end. And, and if these things continue, people relapse. The least bit of stress coming at them begins their thinking that they need a drink to feel better. And in truth, when they drink, they do feel better for an oasis, you know, a small amount of time and then the dark side sets in again. So, with enough reading, I finally decided that we would start a small treatment center and just test out what all these researchers were saying, because if they're right, certainly we would see it. And actually, it was even a shock to me, because in that first year of treating alcoholics, their cravings stopped. And they stop because of biochemical intervention. Mm-hmm. Nobody has to go through life still craving alcohol if you're alcoholic, but but you do have to, through lab tests, see certain markers that need to be fixed, corrected, and and have do that. For instance, uh, universally, alcoholics are hypoglycemic. They're they're if they're not eating. They're not drinking alcohol, they want to eat sugar. And eventually, when they're old, they go into diabetes sometimes. But, but correcting that, that glitch where the brain can't get its fuel and it keeps signaling for fuel, when I realized that alcohol is the fastest fuel to the brain, sugar to the brain, that exists, you can see the link of why suddenly uh, they're all... Their own brains are saying, have a drink, get a drink, <laughs> and doesn't let up until they do. Mm-hmm. And of course, once, once that chemistry begins to drink, there isn't a way to stop it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not a voice that says, fine, you've had enough. Yeah. Whereas the non-alcoholic can't understand at all why, why there's such uh, an ability to drink in large amounts and actually to get a to get a lift from alcohol. Non-alcoholics don't get any lift from alcohol. Mm-hmm. They get sedated or kind of mellowed out and they have a very fixed tolerance and then they're done drinking. So And they don't really care what the ne- next drink is because they don't get anything much back from alcohol. Mm-hmm. If they did, if they got that lift, that energy, and could sustain their drinking you know, for, for an evening, but they'd all be drinking too. Yeah. But there's there's a definite chemistry that, it, and it's genetic. In other words, you see it passed along in a family. 
it's like Russian roulette. It doesn't hit everybody. It hits certain people. And, and you don't choose it. You have to cope with it. And today, there's very few treatment centers that are actually restoring normal well-being to people suffering from alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So as we got into it, and, and this is like 30 years now that we've been doing this, we, I became really enamored with, with this work because it's, it's one of the high points of my life to watch people rise from the ashes and be well in just six weeks. But the, the same, to talk about drugs that are out there in general, uh, any drug that someone gets attached to, cocaine, whatever, is telling us what that brain, the neurotransmitters that should be firing in sufficient amounts, what what that brain is lacking, and they and they fall in love with a drug that that does fire it, and fires it madly. So, and all that's correctable. You can load those back those neurotransmitters so that that brain has all they need. And they're, they're not out prowling for a drug. So, and then. Yeah, it, 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 I left behind, not only my family after they had died, my husband and my son, but, but I left behind that I, my training had all been for five years at, at a university and then at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design in art, and I have never picked up a brush since. So I just became enamored with, with this whole thing because it, it's such a struggle, but it's well worth it to, to teach what has to be available so people can have their lives back. And when you see it in, when you see in a child or a teenager that when they drink, they get a, they get a lift from it, they get a high from it, and they can drink a fair amount, you're looking at a kid with alcoholic chemistry. That fact needs to be taught like just matter of factly now what do I do and what don't I do and, and so forth uh, Dr. So John that, oh, go, go, go ahead go ahead no I was going to say that's, that's really the story of how I got in it it was so personal to begin with and after I saw that you know and this happens so much with research it can pile up on shelves and nobody looks at and puts, puts together what so many voices are saying. But in this case, we did. And what we found was that, that alcoholism, where you sit in a, to treat it, you sit in a group and you tell strangers all of the mistakes of your life and how ashamed you are and so forth, is just pure nonsense. Mm -hmm. It isn't scientific. Mm -hmm. But because these people haven't come to be demeaned and belittled, they've come to get their health back and their lives back. And and that can be done in as short a time as six weeks. Doc, Dr. Joan, oh. in, in an interview you did with uh, Dr. Julian Whitaker, um, I, just, I just saw the clips on YouTube, Dr. Julian Whitaker called psychiatry fraudulent because, as you said just in your answer there, they don't use objective lab tests to look at the underlying biochemical causes. Do you find that when you, do you find that when you speak to psychologists or uh, psychiatrists and you say to them, do you not think that this is biochemical? And you show them the research and you you give them the information to look into. Like, 
How do you feel they react to that? Well, we're, we're, we're the bas- only branch of ba- sorry, bas- of medicine that doesn't know relatives. They don't react favorably to the idea of anything having uh, a cause that you can identify in chemistry. Mm-hmm. Because if they did, they would prove it by lab tests, and they won't do that. Yeah. In fact, the drugs that they are peddling are coming from, or did come from, <clears throat> the same drug companies that now are putting out the new drugs that are on prescription. But the drug peddlers on the street are peddling the old drugs. So, and, and drugs of any sort disrupt the brain in ways that are extremely hard to repair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mainly because there's not as much data known about these things. For instance, in the United States, we have many of our kids as, as young as like six years old on Ritalin and, and they call them like the, they are ADD kids, they can't concentrate well most kids are have those treats anyway, it's just natural especially for boys but but if you give them Ritalin our, one of our universities, the University of Kentucky did a study on Ritalin found that what it is is slowed down cocaine it takes an hour for it to disperse completely, whereas if you just are using cocaine, it's only minutes. But that's what we start our kids out with. What do you think happens? They want more. They're, they're interested in more quick fixes as they get older, mm-hmm. and they get used to seeking out drugs that distort their brain chemistry. The, many kids are, are now, they're not supposed to be, according to our FDA, they're not supposed to be put on the antipsychotics, but they are on them. And certainly, if you go into our, our old people's homes, uh, I mean, where, you know, the, the places where the elderly are retired to, to live in, in homes, they're full of these drugs. And uh, they, these drugs, antipsychotics, all of them shrink our frontal lobes where we do our thinking, and that never comes back. So you can quiet people down so they don't bother you, but we're destroying human life with psychiatry's drugs. Yeah. You can, and the antidepressants are, we, there's so much data on them now that anyone that would seriously think that they're going to recover from depression by taking antidepressants is really barking up the wrong tree because they have done what they call meta-analysis where they have put together every double-blind study ever done on the antidepressants to see the results and it turned out that about 25% of people who've used them say they got some help from them. Interestingly, 50% of those that were getting the placebo, the sugar pills, in those studies, said they got help. So that just cancels out the whole thing. So, and, and in fact, before they ever went on the market, the, the, the whole premise of these antidepressants is that they fire serotonin, which they do. Mm-hmm. But they, there were four different studies done, 
Austrian universities, one by our government, to, to taking people who said they were seriously depressed and measuring their serotonin. All of them had plenty of serotonin. So it just cancels out the whole the whole idea of, of that they need more. But what we did, because all, almost everybody, Robbie, that comes in here is depressed and or anxious. So we began to look for, in lab tests, underlying causes of those two things. And we found quite a number of things that once we see it, we can fix it. But if you don't know what you're looking for, how does it ever get fixed? Uh, One thing I'd like to talk about, because the Irish have certain affinities for, in fact, many different nationalities do, for, for certain glitches, certain things that go wrong more with that population. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one, one thing that has made a big difference in our people is that we test for what's called pyroluria, and people who are pyroluric have been anxious from teenage years. Mm-hmm. And what is going on is that they make, pyros are, are just a, a, a glitch that is, uh, it's the red blood cells that, that uh, kind of fluff off these things called pyros and then they're carried out of the body and that's the end of them. But before they go, they are in the brain attaching themselves to all the zinc you have and all the B6. So if every day your B6 and zinc is leaving the brain and you don't have access to any, that changes the way the brain is able to function. Without zinc, zinc is a buffer against stress coming at us. And if you don't have that, of course you're going to be anxious. The B6 also is a protectant against anxiety. We see people, the, the pyros, uh, we start treating if they have 20, and we've seen them with I don't know, 30, 50, 100, 200. One woman had pyros of 500. She should have been you know, locked up where she could just rest. But all of it's reversible. Mm-hmm. Once you see it, then you can put in every morning enough of B6 and zinc so that those things get fed. And, and still there's going to be more enough for that brain to run normally again. And it's like a whole new life. It's like the sun came out because the anxiety just fades away. But if you don't treat that, then particularly alcoholics can't handle stress except they know if they can drink, they can get through it. And so they just keep relaxing and drinking. Mm-hmm. So these are the kinds of things that we test for and fix. Um, and, and it's not all that hard. People with who lack thyroid, and that's something in this country that's very common, there's a black depression in people like that. That, that is all reversible. Um, of course, the hypoglycemia could cause it. Many people have high, high levels of histamine, and so the methylation has gone from the brain and they're depressed. And that high histamine 
uh, causes their brains to race. Mm -hmm. So these are the go-getters of the world. The trouble is that when they lay down to sleep, their brains don't quiet down. They keep right on racing. Mm -hmm. So so in measuring that histamine, then we can lower it. Not It doesn't really take away their ability to be to exceed most people. They don't need much sleep. And they, and they have high libidos and they are just the go-getters of the world. But it, in many drug users, it goes too far. It gets too high. People who use heroin say to me, I feel normal on heroin. Heroin interferes with histamine in the brain and lowers it. So they do feel normal on heroin. There are other things that you can take besides heroin that aren't so dangerous that will lower that histamine too. What should happen for anybody in the name of treatment is that that all of these needs biochemically that create what seems like our psychological stability, all of this is, is scrutinized with lab work and put right. So we're on an even keel and we're not depressed and we're not anxious and we don't crave whatever it was we thought we couldn't live without. That's what treatment should be, not just sitting around in groups telling strangers how bad life is. I don't know what goes on with treatment in Ireland. Is it 12-step treatment? Um, I'm, I'm actually not too sure. I don't think it is, but it is very similar in that, you know, a lot of people think talk therapy will work, and they, we definitely don't think that a biochemical, uh, underlying biochemical cause is is definitely at the root cause of most people's um, yeah. symptoms or yeah. issues. Uh, Dr. Joan, can, could you just speak about the influence that uh, people like uh, Carl Pfeiffer and Avram Hoffer and Lewis Pauline had on your work? I would love to because they, all of them were, and, and they're dead now, but uh, Abram Hoffer especially, was one of the co-founders of orthomolecular medicine, which is purely, I mean, uh, that was a term that Linus Pauling uh, coined, and Dr. Pauling was the only American that won the Nobel Prize twice by himself here. Just a brilliant man. And he defines orthomolecular medicine as the, uh, a treatment of mental disease by providing the optimum molecular environment for the mind uh, by concentrating and by getting the optimum concentration of substances that are normally present in the brain. So it means that you know that the mind is a manifestation of the the brain's molecular balance, and if that's gone, a good example of that is if you're if you're uh, schizophrenic and you hear voices or see what isn't there and uh, then, then that is not it may be what the mind perceives but it is coming from and being broadcast from our brains so in order to fix that and we do treat schizophrenics here very successfully you need to put back what's missing and in fact in every case where there's what appears to be mental unbalance or illness. And that's orthomolecular medicine. You use the real chemicals from the blueprint of life. I mean, you don't look for drugs. 
in the million years that humans have been on this earth, we've never had those kinds of toxic things in our brains. And they only, in the long run, cause trouble. In fact, now we have got enough uh, already printed in, in the psychiatric journals, follow-ups and charts, that show in every case psychoactive drugs will end up leading to a, a much worse state than you started with. Mm-hmm. You may have a few weeks or even months up front where it seems like it's doing something, but what you don't realize is it's doing something else. It's destroying pathways and, and levels of, of chemicals that, that belong in the brain that will never be reversed again. Mm-hmm. So the idea of orthomolecular is that you use the real chemicals from the blueprint of life. And, like, you know, it started maybe the middle of the last century. And I've always been interested in it because, well, because it works. And because even as a kid, I saw some examples of that kind of accidentally that it works. We had a, when I was growing up, <clears throat> during one summer, my mother decided to, uh, well, she was asked if, if we could take in some, a little girl who was about my age, who was in the school for the blind, and of course in the summertime she was out of school, and she was a, a ward of the state, she had nowhere to live. So uh, we were happy to take Doris in, and my mother was kind of a fanatic about she, you know, take B vitamins, take, she was always doling out things, vitamin A and, and things like that. So Doris got the same share that the rest of us got all summer, and when she went back to take her physical before she returned to the school for the blind, the doctor said to my mother, oh, she isn't blind anymore, and she does it, she tests normal. Well, she had come from a, a very poor section uh, of, of Minnesota where the, the poverty was terrible, and she never had even halfway normal levels of vitamin A and things that would give her back her eyesight. But when it was poured in generously, it, it all came back. Years later, I read the same kind of thing happened in the Near East with kids where the UNESCO, which is, you know, the UN wing treating, helping children, had given a lot of vitamin A to, to those children that have, were all blind, and they all got their sight back, too. So even as a kid, I began to think, so that's how it works. You have to have these real chemicals in sufficient amounts to be normal, whatever that is. And more and more now, you could never convince me that there's any drug out there that could compete with what God's created. Mm-hmm. Because it just, it, it, it has a dark side. Those drugs have dark sides. Mm-hmm. But the real chemicals only keep healing you. Mm-hmm. Dr. So, so that is and And the doctors that you mentioned were, are some of the, the leaders that were, and took a terrible beating verbally. In fact, in, in the States here, they tried to destroy orthomolecular medicine in the 70s because psychiatry, which is owned by the drug companies, who I call Big Pharma, 
are, the drug companies are the richest cartel in the world. They truly elect our officials because they back who they want. And and what happened was that all all drug companies do is peddle drugs, and yet here was a a voice of science and of reason saying, use the real chemicals, stay away from the artificial pretenders that are drugs. So it, it was a, a battle that for a long time looked like there wasn't sufficient funds even to keep it going. And Aldous Huxley put a lot of money at that time into both the molecular medicine and kept it afloat. And in the 80s, there was a lot of training available for us if we would go to New York for a week at a time, several times a year. And so I met a lot of these people. And finally got to the point when we opened and, and were proving what what we were doing that that we were that Abe Hoffer and I got to be very good friends and he said to me, You have created the only um, fourth molecular answer to addiction and, and truly that is what it is. It's just you know, people who you see who are successful in this world, or who have attributes that you you wish you had, it's, it's their brain chemistry that they have. And so for the first time now, really, in the 21st century, well, it was the last century that we, we discovered what we run on. We didn't know what created life in us. Now, as soon as we discovered it, of course, the drug companies were busy altering it all for money. Mm-hmm. But... But it is any any person, <clears throat> not just people who are really suffering with addiction diseases, but anybody can change for the better uh, how their brain serves them if they understand what to do. And the tests exist to be able to show you what's happening. So and, and there's hardly, in fact, that that phenomena. Has it isn't just in psychiatry that looking beneath the symptoms and being curious about cause has died out in the United States. Most doctors don't care about what caused anything. It's here, take this prescription. It treats these symptoms. And the underlying cause goes on destroying you. Well, as you said, that, that sort of type of mentality just keeps making big pharma richer. Um, it does, it, and it, it makes all of medicine, the way it's practiced here, richer too, because you don't die, but you don't get well, so um, it, it uh, goes on and on. Dr. John, I, I read a great book by a lady called um, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride, I don't know if you've ever heard of her, she wrote a book called The Gaps Diet, Gut and Psychology Syndrome, and what I found very, um, very uh, interesting with your book and her book was when you talked about a family history of depression and suicide, and mm-hmm. Dr. McBride would also say would say that there would be family histories of, you know, the, the, the certain symptoms that a client w- would present to her. But she, her big thing was she would always link digestive and gut problems. She was very, very big on fixing and healing your gut, because her thing was if they weren't absorbing the nutrients from their diet, like from yeah. like like the neurotransmitters from the amino acids. That that is why these right, pe- these right. people would have these uh, certain um, 
certain uh, mental illnesses. Do you think that digestion then has a massive role to play in, in these symptoms of depression, uh, schizophrenia, etc.? Yeah, you're exactly right, but let me put one more piece in here that upset me when I first heard it, but it happens to be the truth. Our brains that we think of as being in our heads, all, every everything that consists of our brain is duplicated around the body, and one place is in our digestive tract, in our intestinal tract. And so that brain manifests psychological psychological symptoms that that feel like and, and really are depression and anxiousness and unstable emotions and in fixing the gut you know we fix but we, we, we get back on an even keel again that and that brain is now performing the way it should mm-hmm. so we pay a lot of attention here we do a lot of testing and we find some odd things going on for instance if you I don't know how frequently your population uses antibiotics but in the states people live on them and you soon develop candida which is uh, (laughs) that antibiotics are a fungus basically and candida alpacans is also a fungus but you know it lives in, in everybody in small amounts why I can't tell you but in small amounts it doesn't do any harm but when you take antibiotics they whistle through your intestinal tract they kill everything the way they're supposed to but they don't kill their own they don't kill candida another fungus and so pretty soon all that lives in your intestinal tract are big sheets of candida albicans which finally become strong enough to be systemic. They get into the bloodstream and they cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, that's a major cause for depression mm-hmm. in the brain mm-hmm. and fatigue and spaciness. And we tried many different attempts to, to, to clear that stuff. And partially, uh, it just can't be done with natural chemicals. But, but and, and we tried Nystatin, which to work and then the candida would mutate and come back. Finally, we are using something called Dysucan and that is, you take it for two weeks and people suffer while taking it because it's clearing it out of every cell and out of the brain. You're dumping it into the bloodstream and people are like sick until it's cleared completely. But it's like the sun came out. It gets your brain back. And you have to do this if you've been on a lot of antibiotics. Otherwise, you're shutting down your immune system. The immune system, which we measure fighting the candida, has lost the war, and there's no more action. Mm-hmm. So, so that is a real important piece. The other thing that we see a lot of now here, it, we do challenges of toxic metals that have moved into the brain to stay. Mm-hmm. And people are full of lead, but more particularly, they're full of mercury. And if that's going on in the brain, you can't get the candida out or other drugs that are like toxic drugs that these people have been on that they come in and and most of the time we could clear them well. We ran up against people that we couldn't clear anything. We finally came to see that it's the mercury that just holes in the brain. Any any of that uh, 
kind of drugs that ordinarily with some work you can clear out. So first the mercury has to go. Mm-hmm. And that's a big order, but, but it's, it's not only possible to get your brain back. If you think that these things are going on, then you have no idea how good you could feel if it was gone from your brain. But it's cumulative over time. And you know, fish are full of it now, mercury. Our dentists in the United States are still putting mercury fillings, even in kids. So it's, some things are unfathomable why why we do these things. But but, uh, finding out, when, when someone comes in who their main, what their, their, their main problems are, their depressed and anxious and using drugs, typically underneath that there are a number of, of breakdowns in the way their brain serves them and, and their nervous systems and, and their bodies in general are, are not, they're not well. And yet, since I suppose it's the last century, we have got it in our heads that we can talk to people and it will all clear up, which to me sounds idiotic because like the brain is physical. You can hold it in your hand. Uh, You don't like talk to the brain and it does it differently. You've got to give it the chemicals that it runs on and then everything changes for the better. Dr. Jones, do do you think that the, well, I suppose you don't think, I suppose you definitely agree that our nutrition has depleted so poorly, Is our nutrition has been so poor over the last century, particularly the last 30-40 years, do you think this has a massive contribution to the, to the increasing levels of depression and anxiety among people? Absolutely, and, and it's so easy if people would only realize it to put back, you know, like when you, when you start looking at what each B, vitamin B, vitamin does, to be missing any of them, you're like certifiably insane. So load them all back. And, and in fact, in all the minerals, they do so much more than people realize. And I, I do write about them in, in both my books, but if you can get interested in, in building back and almost in being your own doctor because you know your symptoms and if you can, I don't know if you have access over there to people, doctors who do uh, like here we would call them um, not allopathic medicine but but, uh, naturopaths? Yeah, like naturopathic, they they in fact can do labs now over here, I don't know about there but I, 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 I'm actually li- I'm licensed to do, to do the, the tests, uh, Dr. John. I, I do I do functional nutrition, so I can do like cortisol, ah. cortisol and um, uh, mucosal barrier and metabolic and liver det- detoxification and except, you know and, and allergy tests. So I, I'm licensed to do that here in Ireland. Oh, that's wonderful. But that is the only way to health to, to be scientific about what what we need to fix. Otherwise, these ideas of, here, take this prescription, it's a shot in the dark, we don't really know if this is what's wrong with you. <laughs> Try this, you know, 
is only making people sicker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dr. Jones, can, can, can you speak about the importance of essential fatty acids in, in the process? Oh, yeah. This, the essential fatty acids uh, really are interesting uh, because the brain runs on, two-thirds of the brain is running mainly depending on essential fatty acids. All the B vitamins sit on a straight in the, in the brain of essential fatty acids. Have to have that piece. Uh, the way hormones are distributed are controlled in the brain by essential fatty acids. And in order to get, and, and now I'm talking more about omega-3, and in order to get these things, you, you need to be on, when I was a kid it was cod liver oil, and I can still remember trying to hide from my mother when she tried to jam that down my throat all the time. But a new mother or someone carrying a child to term, to start taking those essential fatty acids is to start building a superior brain in your child. Mm -hmm. these, it, these are more important probably for building uh, brain power than anything you could pick out. Mm -hmm. And the omega-6 essential fatty acids, now that's an interesting thing because many people, as it converts from one thing to another before it goes over the, the last the last stage of those omega-6 mm -hmm. is GLA gamma linolenic acid and many people certainly the people we see in test never get that far with it so it can't go over into the brain and make prostaglandin E1 which is a powerful antidepressant and feel good uh, kind of metabolite and the Irish are notably at the top of the list for people that can't do that. But you can take GLA, gamma-linic acid, and, that, and it will then convert. And it takes maybe about a week or so. When we first started, in, we were really blessed that, that the person, Dr. Horbin, David Horbin, who came from the British Isles, mm -hmm. uh, he had developed a lot of research around that particular omega-6. And and we teamed up with him as he explained that we could lift certain kinds of depression that way, especially in people who, like Irish, Scottish, Welsh, that whole group. And, but the amounts that they had available in each capsule in those days, it would take three weeks. And these people didn't smile, they just shuffled around, then bang all of a sudden. It wasn't gradual. It was all of a sudden when they had loaded enough, they were fine. They were back to normal. And I can remember we had a man at that time from New York. He was a lawyer, and he was 100% Irish. And he said to me one day, I, he said, I woke up at 3 in the morning, and I thought, what is wrong with me? I feel so strange. Well, the first day of his life, he wasn't depressed. And then he was worried it was going to come back. I said, no, it will never come back as long as you supply the, the, the prostaglandin E1. Mm -hmm. So that's something extremely important. Another piece to that is that there's coenzymes that are needed, and they're the B6 and zinc, which pyrolytics don't have. So those kinds of people can change their lives dramatically mm -hmm. by putting in what they got shortchanged of 
and so did their family. You could point to them by description. They're all they all have some of the same attributes of being anxious and being depressed. And and in many times, if they can drink, if they have that chemistry, they will drink because it makes them feel better. So I, I find nutrition, I almost wish they'd name it something else, like biochemical repair or something, because nutrition in this country is kind of left down, like it's just uh, not important. If there's always, in fact, we cannot put by law on a bottle of, say, vitamin A, that it has any effect in healing anything. Whereas drug companies, can put all kinds of claims in and there's really nothing that they put out that doesn't have such a dark side that you're going to pay a penalty for taking that. Mm-hmm. Dr. John, can you speak about um, hypoglycemia in depression? In in a book by uh, Nora Gagadis, I don't know if you've heard of her either, she has a book called Primal Body, Primal Mind. She is a, um, um, a, a nutritional therapist and she's also a um, a neuro a neurofeedback specialist. She she speaks about hypoglycemia being one of the primary causes for these kind of violent outbursts, these kind of up and downs of you know you're you're fine one minute and then the next minute you know the world is coming to an end. Can you just speak about yeah. how how, yeah. how your irregular blood sugar levels can can impact the depression? Yeah, it, going back to molecular researchers, there are so many papers on hypoglycemia that you can't get your hands on today. But fortunately, at my age, I have gotten my hands on them over the years. And and hypoglycemia is just a major source of cravings and unstable moods. Mm-hmm. So it's very important. Bill W. that founded AA in this country wrote a, quite an elaborate communication to AA physicians all about hypoglycemia and how it was all really the foundation of, and it is, of the cravings. Mm-hmm. Because hypoglycemia basically is saying um, something is interfering with the brain continuing to get its fuel to run. And, and what it is is, and, and all, I won't say all, but I would say like almost 90% of alcoholics are hypoglycemic. And, and then a, some of them have gone on into diabetes, and then there's just a few that appear to be normal for some reason. But but the idea that uh, that when you eat sugar, which hypoglycemics crave, or el- drink alcohol, you you call out the pancreas releases just a flood of insulin. Uh, way too much. It isn't why it does that. Is that it's this hair trigger, uh, and that's that is the hypoglycemia. And in order to back that off, one needs to give up those triggers because if you can change the diet so that that you're eating a lot more protein, protein and fats won't trigger any hypoglycemic reaction. They won't trigger insulin to be suddenly poured and wipe out all of your fuel for your brain. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the diet that, that one needs to cultivate. And the first week of trying to back away from sugar or alcohol is hard, but after a while you notice.
notice you don't miss it at all. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, you taste the sweetness in vegetables like carrots that you never tasted before. Mm-hmm. And what happens to you, the, the, there was a doctor who did a very detailed uh, report on 1,200 hypoglycemic patients. He did that because he himself was hypoglycemic and he had gone just everywhere trying to get some help and no one, he couldn't find anyone who even acknowledged the disease. And so when he finally did get his help, he became just a fanatic about treating everything. But here are some of the symptoms that occur the most often in in hypoglycemics. 94% are nervous and irritable and, and almost 90% are, suffer from exhaustion and dizziness. They stand up too fast, they feel lightheaded and tremor. And about 80% suffer from depression. And 62%, he says, unprovoked anxieties. They worry all the time. And 57% mental confusion. The thing that astounded me was suicidal intent was one out of five. So this is nothing you take, uh, you know, lightly. It's very solvable, but if you don't do that, it gets worse. It just relates so to, to alcoholism that you can't really treat alcoholism without treating hypoglycemia. Mm-hmm. Also, and be successful. It, yeah. Also, in, in her book, Norga Goddess, uh, it was kind of one of the first... Um, first books where I read you often hear from doctors that you know the only fuel your brain can use is glucose and, and you know and all this but in her book she actually quotes a few doctors here who've written biochemical and metabolism textbooks and they say that the preferred fuel for your brain and even your heart and, and your nervous system once you've made a metabolic switch is actually ketones and Gagadis w- would argue that I mean for millions of years w- when we are you know when we had to live in ice ages or cold lands that you know our bodies were more keen to live off these fats and and her thing right. is, and and and, right. her, and and her thing is that you know fat is far more stabilizing to our moods and, and, and our and our brain as you said because it's two-thirds of our of our brain fat and cholesterol so her kind of hypothesis is that we need to be fueling ourselves more with what we genetically have have come to um come to eat as humans and her thing is you know we always went for the higher fat foods because we always knew that that equaled more calories which meant longer survival so her thing is that really ketones is actually the preferred uh, fuel source once you've made that metabolic switch for your brain which i found very interesting and um, what, what would your take be on that dr john yes you know in the 70s you might remember this there was a dr robert atkins that came out with a diet that was high fat and and he really got ridiculed for that. Well, yeah. truth was, it, it, with that high fat, and of course there was no carbs on it, uh, people lost weight like crazy, and they could eat and eat and eat, but it was fat or, or protein, and just a very little bit of, of uh, sugar. Mm-hmm. I won't call it sugar. Carbohydrates. <laughs> and... and Finally, there was so much discussion on it that, that I think it's stuck now how how valuable the good fats are yeah. to us. Yeah. And that if you have, say your diet, say you get up in the morning and have bacon and eggs, that's going to stay with you all 
morning and burn off as energy for you. If you have like a roll of coffee, it's and you're hypoglycemic. It's all over in an hour. Now you're looking for something else. Yeah, there, there, so. there's a strength and conditioning coach, uh, Charles Pollock, and he's he's like he's world renowned, and he'd be he'd be pretty holistic. He has a thing called the meat and nut breakfast and he gets everyone to do meat and nut and his reason for that is that when you eat very high sugary foods or caffeine in the morning it stimulates this massive tryptophan serotonin kind of um, uh, burst but he says you crash within an hour or two and that's when you're at work reaching for a, a sugary snack but he's like when you have that meat, that, that meat and nut breakfast it really stabilizes your blood sugar up until lunch or past even. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. it, th- those things are so basic, and yet most people don't know them. They don't. They don't know how to take care of themselves. Uh, Doctor John, you also um. Oh, what was I going to say there? I was going to say something. Well, I, I wanted to tell you too that stabilizing uh, the glucose metabolism, you could get some help by taking things like glutamine, mm-hmm. which, in fact, if if you're going into a, a hypoglycemic reaction but the brain has glutamine, it will use that as fuel instead of plunging you down into oblivion. And so we we have a powder, you know, with a scoop in it, a thing here for, for our clients, and, and they all take glutamine a few times during the day. Mm-hmm. That helps to, to uh, reverse what otherwise is going to happen to them. And also niacin, niacin raises that whole curve it lifts, uh, I mean, when I say the curve, I mean, we do glucose tolerance tests on everyone. We do five-hour tests, and most of the curves that we see, you wonder how they put one foot in front of the other. I mean, the, the bottom falls out, and it's just this plunge, and the adrenals are supposed to stop that and save the day, but, but most of them, their adrenals are so exhausted from stress that the adrenals Take that 
away so you can do, get get the job done, and then you'll never hopefully go back again to to either alcohol or sugar if you're hypoglycemic. Dr. John, could you speak about uh, B6's role with uh, tryptophan and, and, and serotonin, and also uh, tyrosine and L-phenylalanine's role with norepinephrine? Yeah, the tryptophan we use a lot of. You know, in the end of, was about 1990 that the government then pulled it off the market because it was, and it still is, being made by Showa Denka over in Japan, and they had changed their manufacturing to make a little money, and the thing got skewed, and Could you, so, could, could you speak why why you don't like um, 5-HTP? You, you wrote that. Oh, well, yeah, you know, they said, and I don't know if this is true, uh, but in, in one uh, piece of research I was reading that in, in Europe they add a drug to that to, to, to direct it into the brain, but in the United States they just take it by itself and there is no guarantee where it's going to go in the body. And we had a class action suit several years ago with a drug company version of uh, the same thing and it, it had injured the heart and hadn't gone into the brain at all. And so it, it's a much wiser choice to take tryptophan which will easily convert in your brain to serotonin so you know where it's going and you know what you get. Otherwise, you don't know with 5-HTP. Mm-hmm. And tyrosine and phenylalanine's role with norepinephrine, can you speak on that? Tyrosine, yeah, in fact, going back to phenylalanine in the, in the 80s, when we first got phenylalanine, no one says how much you should take. It's all guesswork. Yeah. Wow, I mean, don't take too much <laughs> because it, it's, you'll get a headache from it. It's so powerful. But that's an excitatory thing, and it goes on to make tyrosine. And in fact, phenylalanine does make certain things that it's worth starting with that rather than tyrosine. Uh, and then finally, from tyrosine to dopamine, which is a really feel-good kind of thing too, uh, and, and then on to norepinephrine, which is what uh, jazzes you up and gives you energy and, and so forth. So that's like the opposite of tryptophan, and it doesn't have a dark side. These are made by God, not by man, and and people differ with how they like these things depending on how they're wired, Mm -hmm. but it's worth uh, using, especially, we have someone here now with narcolepsy, and, and... you know, this, if, if you've got plenty of phenyl, 
have it out there that then actually deplete your uh, the, the, the effects of that because that's how they work. If they fire fast enough, uh, it'll feel like you've got tons of energy mm-hmm. until you have so depleted that norepinephrine store that, that you're just collapsing mm-hmm. and your adrenals are collapsing. But for a while, the drug is wonderful and things like methamphetamine is very popular here. They got half the country in jail for making methamphetamine and that's employing all kinds of really awful attitudes, but, but mainly you're pushing Dr. John, yeah, just yeah. go. Sorry, it's finished there yet? No, that's all right. Go ahead. Um, just my, my final two questions because I know you're busy and I, I, I'll let you go. Uh, I just want to touch on uh, the thyroid and depression, Hashimoto's, and also I wanted to ask about histamine. The you, you kind of touched on histamine earlier on, but just in your book you talk about high levels and low levels and how this can feed into some compulsive disorders. So just that with the thyroid first. Yeah, the thyroid in this country, I don't know how it is all around the world, but but we seem, since the 70s, when they change the testing, there are more people that need thyroid that it doesn't show in the testing. But what we do get is they measure the RT3. In other words, thyroid, from T4, it changes into T3. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, that's what we use. But, but in many of our people, I'd say the great majority, there's a holding tank they've named RT3, and instead of becoming T3, the thyroid they can use, it is like cast off into this holding tank. So we have them take their temperature before they get out of bed every morning, and if it never goes above 97.8, we will give thyroid and of course you'll give such a small amount to begin with you can't load tons of thyroid at first it is absolutely safe to do that and not only that but when you need it it is such a godsend because there's your energy and you come to life on thyroid there's many people in this country that are muddling along and, and what's really wrong is they haven't got that gold power they should have from thyroid. Mm-hmm. So I, I consider that extremely important to, to make sure that, that people have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I know we use natural thyroid. We don't use Synthroid. A few years ago there was a study that they paid a university, I think it was at Berkeley, California, because that Synthroid is an English-owned uh, a company, yeah. and they paid for the study, and they wanted it told how Synthroid was so superior to natural thyroid. Mm-hmm. Didn't turn out that way at all. And so when she tried to publish it, they stopped her, and they asked the university to fire her. And she, they, they said no, they were going to go that far. And the Synthroid people said there would be no more research money coming their way. So this whole story came out in a journal about three years after it actually happened, so that the country actually 
finally got to see what those results were. And the results are, as you would expect, that real thyroid from pigs, which is very similar to our own, is much better than Synthroid for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Synthroid is, causes a breakdown of, of our bones as we age, and you store a lot of excess water that it can't get rid of, like the natural thyroid does. So it, the whole thing, if you can stick with as close as possible to what was actually invented by the creator, or whatever one believes in that put us all together, yeah, we're, yeah. we're far safer than Big Pharma, who has terrible plans to keep you as sick as possible, but, you know, alive but sick. So so don't take Synthroid. Take, there's a, a lot of versions over here of armors, but all of them are pretty much from pig thyroid, and I think it comes from Australia. Mm-hmm. They also, we give here something you might find interesting, adrenal cortical extract that is also from pigs. And they will, that will restore. We put them right into our IVs at the end of the IVs. That will restore the adrenals. Mm-hmm. In fact, doing an IV with me after the first time that I had that, to say that I was run down after some of the losses I had was putting it mildly. My adrenals were really shot. I felt it maybe took about a half an hour after the IV. And I noticed how benevolent, benevolent I felt towards the whole world. And I thought, that's odd. I thought that was a spiritual feeling, but it isn't. It's when your adrenals are finally functioning again and you feel strong. So many of our people love that restoration uh, that they get from adrenals that otherwise are so... It takes a long time if you do nothing mm-hmm. uh, to, to rebuild them. And that too, with weak adrenals, you can those people feel it. They they feel inadequate and and, and tired and anxious. That can that can be handled. There's also drops that go under the tongue of adrenal cortical extract. Mm-hmm. That in fact were stopped about 20 years ago by the FDA, but now it's back again because there's nothing. I mean, there's no reason to take them off the market. And can you just speak finally on the histamine, the low and high? I found that very interesting with regards to compulsive disorders. Well, yeah, histamine, low histamine and high histamine should be determined by people because it, it tells a lot about, uh, I mean, the symptoms are, are so controlling of us and, and yet you, we think of ourselves as being, I don't know, being being psychologically that we have these traits. Well, these traits are coming from our histamine. And if you don't like those traits, you can switch. I mean, you can either uh, lower your histamine so low and nobody in their right mind would do that, uh, or or raise it. And folic acid, of course, uh, is the main thing that will raise histamine. A, low, a person with low histamine is dragging around, tired, has wonderful ideas, but nothing ever comes to fruition because they just don't have the go power. Uh, and, and I think 
that it runs through families a lot. Uh, here we have an odd affair. Uh, most of the people we treat are not at all from Minneapolis or Minnesota. They're from all over the country, sometimes all over the world. But they're a family member usually comes with. And, and when we discover a cause of depression, or if we discover like pyroluria or, or histamine levels are off, it goes for everyone in the family that has those same traits, and they all benefit by treating the same. So, but in high histamine people, these people are, they, they are the people everyone hopes they can be because their energy is good, is high. They don't need eight hours sleep, mostly. They can get by on six hours and they're fine. And they have a high libido. Uh, I commented that most of the people that are elected uh, senators and so forth in Washington are, are that description. They're go-getters, they're bright, they're, they're, they've got a lot of hustle, but they're also high libido and they're forever getting into the headlines for their extramarital affairs and so forth. And it's just, I mean, you have to take the package. It all goes together. But, but the danger on both sides of being too high or too low is, is that it does start to run your life in ways you don't like. So once you, once you have a test and you see where you're at, you can either raise histamine, which is very easy to do, it goes fast, or lower it, which takes longer, but does work. Mm -hmm. And if you keep on lowering it, it'll keep on going down, so you have to decide when you want to stop doing that for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Joan, that's... um Absolutely brilliant. We're an hour and ten minutes in, and I really appreciate your time. I, I'd love to have you back on, maybe talk more about the actual protocols for uh, and treatments for some for some of the um, some of the uh, symptoms. So um, I I don't know if you're if you'd be free again in, in the near future. But uh, my my final final question is, what did you have for breakfast today? <laughs> what did I have for breakfast? Well, my breakfast don't consist of a lot in that. I myself am pyroluric, and pyroluric hate, hate breakfast, but I try to get some protein. Uh, and the other thing, and we didn't talk about this, but I, I've got to at least make this sweeping statement, which will Go ahead. probably scare you, that what we see in every single person that, that comes in here is almost the predominant problem, is that they are full of allergies. And when you said Hashimoto's, and where does that come from? That is allergies. When you clear up the allergy addiction to things, commonplace things like dairy is so commonplace. Gluten and as well. Gluten is terrible. Of course, sugar and corn is in everything. Mm -hmm. You clear up until it's gone on the, on the labs any sign of Hashimoto's. Mm -hmm. So, but the allergies also dump a lot of uh, inflammation in it. And today, the, I, the, the theme behind cancer and heart disease is the extraordinary amounts of inflammation in our weakest spots that then get attacked. And, and we can name what's killing us. 
So it's very important that we identify what we love and give it up. And, and today there's so many substitutes. For instance, I drink coconut milk instead of dairy. Mm-hmm. And that's, I had some of that this morning. And, and even the yogurt that I eat is coconut yogurt. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't eat dairy anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, we, we, can, we do a lot of testing, delayed reaction testing. Where, as you're as you're spooning in what you love, you're in ecstasy. But two or four hours later, you're getting the downside, and you don't get why it's mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. So I find that so it, it's difficult to trace down, but it isn't impossible. Mm-hmm. And the relief you get is astounding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's about all I can say about allergies, except that it's very exciting to get people to go down that road because. They want something to happen right away for them, and it will if they'll go after their allergy addiction. Mm-hmm. There's a book I'd like to recommend. Oh, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, he is from Australia. It's called Trace Your Genes to Health, and is is a doctor. He's an molecular physician, Chris Redding, R E A D I N G. Brilliant. And I don't I don't know who. Let me see if I've got any. No help to you. I don't know where to tell you to call. It was, I mean, it's, it was published in Connecticut, but that isn't gonna. I might, I might, might be able to get it on Amazon or eBay. Yeah, you might. I'm, in fact, I'm sure you do. Well, he's he's spoken a number of times at North Molecular conferences, and when I read that thing, well, you know, every, everyone that's got allergies, and that's just about everyone I know, doesn't want to hear that <laughs> they've got to change. Yeah, but if yeah. they could only dwell on the reward thing, they don't realize what's going to happen, mm-hmm. how good their health is going to get, mm-hmm. and how well they're going to feel. Mm-hmm. So, so it's well worth coming to grips with how you're how, how you're pampering yourself with stuff that's poisoning you. Yeah, even even in that book by Dr. McBride, she speaks about uh, delayed reactions too. She even said you can have delayed reaction. You could eat something and have a delayed reaction to it like two or three days later. Like you can. Which I which However. I which I found amazing because I usually associate it with you eat something and within four hours you might have that like you know a hypoglycemic effect or, or something along those lines. But I was shocked that you could have a a reaction two, three, or four days or even more after you eat a certain food. Well, I think that's pretty rare, but it can happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think that people also need to include in what they're looking for are airborne and chemical reactions, like to perfumes and to gasoline. And you yeah. find people that are just universal reactors. Sometimes in their jobs, they're yeah. breathing things all day long. Mm-hmm. I, no one can put them right if they're going to keep doing that. House painters have got a low level of, of addiction to the ethanol going all day long and they go right to the bar after work. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. they're already trying to, to keep drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So it, they've got to back away from that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. John, um, 
<laughs> I've 10 minutes to get down to, to, to my facility to go to work so I better let you go but I definitely would love to have you back on maybe to talk more again about as I said the uh, treatment and protocols for, for, for the certain symptoms that you described in your book because your book was, was just a wealth of information for anyone listening Dr. Jones book uh, she's two books one is called seven weeks of sobriety and the other one is called depression free naturally which was originally called seven weeks to emotional healing is that right dr john that's true random house changes the title on us when, when they put it in uh okay. paperback okay. those are the paperback and if anybody wants any information about something i've said they could call here the number here is at health recovery center in minneapolis is 627 7800 mm-hmm. and I don't know those numbers that go before that but that's our oh yeah you, people can get that on, on the show notes too I'll, I'll link Dr. John's website and um, any YouTube clips of her um, she did a great interview with uh, Julian Whitaker and there's one or two other clips of Dr. John speaking so I'll link all that into the show notes um, guys that is it for t- this week's episode um, take care I'll talk to you soon and stay strong